I actually don't like the art lending market personally, because that's why I left it pretty fast is because it's kind of a slime industry, a lot of suing and like, oh, you damaged my artwork, yada, yada, to get um, ownership of the underlying asset. Um, and that's why I went to banking because, you know, that's less slimy. <laughs> Anyways, um, the uh, the real industry that we're really fascinated by are the cash flow generating like hard assets. I like to joke like it could be a brick of dirt as long as generates cash flow and pays on the debt. It's a solid asset. Um, and uh, that's kind of what we're most excited for. Like these are incredibly productive assets. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floyd's Rising with us special guests today, Connor Moore and David Choi from MetaStreet, uh, a NFT slash metaverse uh, finance company. Welcome to the show, Connor and David. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Hi, this is David Choi from MetaStreet. Um, I initially got into my NFTs. I think my first purchase was the CryptoKitty. Um, and uh, I was kind of laughed out the door when I was working at Deutsche Bank, where they were like, when you're buying JPEGs online. And um, I, I, I think that uh, that kind of made me excited that I was getting laughed at because I never liked being in the... Um, in, in the fair way when it comes to being on new trends. Um, and that was the first experience. Um, obviously lost all that value, um, but it kind of introduced me into this space um, kind of early on. Um, and ever since kind of been keeping in tabs with it. Um, my first job actually at college was actually doing art lending. So collateralizing artworks for, for loans. Um, so this wasn't so far away because people are doing loans against whiskey or uh, like, um, handbags and stuff like that. And this to me was just another asset that you can collateralize, um, which was quite interesting. Um, and yeah. And over the years as DeFi kind of took off and you had like kind of permissionless, uh, lending structures as well as, uh, more financial use cases, there was a obvious, obvious marriage with that and NFTs. Um, and, but the vision came a little bigger as I realized that, uh, you know, this thesis of the metaverse was starting to build up and it wasn't just a, an, an intersection between two convenient trends. It was actually the foundations of something much bigger. Um, and that's kind of got what me excited, um, especially with gaming kind of colliding and DAOs. Um, it, it all seems like it's all converging to the same same direction uh, to some degree. Uh, and that was my first exposure for, for NFTs and what got me excited about it. I came into this space a little bit after David. So I, David and I overlapped at um, Deutsche Bank um, way back in the day. And, uh, and he kind of then forged into crypto full time. I kind of continued down um, traditional finance route for a bit, um, working in private equity and doing a lot of like structured products around um, real assets for the most part, <clears throat> like real estate and things like that. Um, and so we started to talk about uh, NFTs in earnest together uh, in kind of the summer of 21 as, as obviously there was so much excitement around it. And we just felt like there was a, a really obvious uh, need for more sophisticated debt markets than, than what was existing because what existed at the time was uh, extremely rudimentary. Um, and as, as we kind of think about and, you know, our vision for 
what we're building at MetaStreet as sort of this infrastructure layer for broader kind of digital economy growth and metaverse growth. Like you need kind of those those core building blocks of productive capital markets to to sit atop um, or sit underneath rather the the broader growth of a digital economy. So that was like really the inspiration, particularly around NFTs. Um, I didn't have a you know specific background in in collecting or anything like that, but just saw the the opportunity and um, kind of building proper capital markets for a uh, really exciting new permissionless um, representation of assets. I'd be interested to hear you guys, because um, because you guys have launched vaults, uh, your, your vaults for a bit, and maybe you can sort of take us through like what your um, sort of uh, vault uh, product is and how it works. Yeah, that's a great question. I, so the... The first part on on kind of how the vaults work, um, I can quickly run through. Uh, and I think it, it's it, the the structure for the vaults is an inspiration from looking at really the two uh, schools of thought on on lending markets for NFTs and trying to be create something that can can take the best uh, components of both markets or both schools of thought. So the peer-to-peer market, which is Niftify, as you mentioned, um, is extremely simple, but also very safe. Um, you have two people that participate. One person has an NFT, the other person has capital. You agree to terms, the NFT gets locked into an escrow contract, and the borrower gets to use the money. When the loan comes due in some amount of time, they either return the money plus interest or they default on the loan. Um, that product is, allows for uh, complete long tail coverage because anyone can agree to, you know, lend to any NFT, um, and it also is Oracle list in the sense that there's no uh, specific kind of third party Oracle that is determining the terms at which uh, those loans get made. The really good things. The bad thing about peer to peer is that it's it's pretty capital inefficient. Um, typically, individuals have worse kind of capital efficiency than aggregated positions. Um, that's why, you know, banks exist. That's why you don't get a loan for your your house from, you know, your neighbor bought to the bank. And, you know, the bank is then selling all their positions into one aggregated participant, you know, Fannie Mae or, or Freddie Mac in the US. So that that starts to maybe give a, a bit of a picture for what we're trying to accomplish, which is sort of that aggregate very safe um, kind of uh, infrastructure layer in the peer-to-peer contract. Um, the peer-to-pool contract is the the alternative strategy in NFT lending right now. And that has that capital efficiency that, that you want where borrowers can come and instantly get loans, um, but it's limited by its dependency on, on oracles, which can be manipulated, um, as well as uh, you can't really get long because as you go further and further out the spectrum, your data points get fewer and, and further between and be kind of a subject matter expert to know whether or not you should be lending against some, you know, brand new collection or, or something that is just does, doesn't have a lot, a lot of trading history or, or transaction volume. So the inspiration for the Metatree Vault was basically take the, the benefits of pooled capital and capital efficiency and overlay that one layer behind the peer-to-peer markets. And so the way that works is Basically, and, and you probably are, are somewhat familiar with this because you've been a user of the platform, but you know, users deposit into these vaults. And um, once you've deposited into the vault, you basically have exposure to a basket of, of loans. And those loans are going to be 
um, kind of uh, a, a whitelisted set of collections um, that are sort of you know deemed kind of blue chip or top tier collections, and uh, and those loans are are basically being bought from um, peer to peer market participants. So if I go on Niftify and I create that loan, I'm creating a, an NFT contract as a lender that I can actually go and sell into. You know, I can sell to another individual. I can also sell it into the into the vault. And the vaults basically abstract away that process of underwriting by having what we're kind of calling a weighted average cost of capital, but um, it's effectively you know a single interest rate that we will apply to a loan at, at any given time. That interest rate is a combination of different variables that are specific to the loan or specific to the vault. And so what I mean by that is like if a loan has a higher LTV, there's a higher interest rate expectation associated with that. Um, if a loan is a longer duration, that there's a higher interest rate expectation associated with that because those, those are both the more risky components of a loan. Um, and if the vault as a whole has higher utilization levels, then you would want higher interest rates um, as well. And so basically, we we have these um, sort of curves that you combine together, and what that gives a uh, a note holder is a single price for their their loan at any given time that they turn around and sell their position. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, is a secondary market buyer of these promissory notes that are getting created on on the peer to peer basis. Um, and in theory, this should improve capital efficiencies because as a depositor, you get exposure to a passive yield source. Um, where you don't have to go and originate loans, and you're also getting exposure to a bunch of different types of collateral. So presumably, with diversification, should come you know lower risk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you know the the vaults have been live for a couple of months now, and I think one of the main takeaways for us is the importance of distribution beyond just having a theoretically um, sound product, but then actually going and, and ensuring that. You know, loans are getting originated, that loans are getting sold into the vaults, that depositors understand their experience. And this is kind of the, the challenge with any new product that is, is kind of getting the distribution channels and getting the origination uh, happening for the vaults to actually properly function. And so since launching the, the vaults, we've actually uh, introduced bots on to Niftify and they'll be on Arcade and some other peer-to-peer -peer platforms really soon that basically will offer terms at the exact price that the vault will accept the loan. So disintermediates kind of that, uh, that participation. And we've also introduced um, a, new a new product called PowerSweep, which is um, basically leverage trading of NFTs. So all these efforts to, to improve distribution channels um, for the vaults to ultimately have higher utilization and better capital efficiency for everyone that's participating. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, you mentioned PowerSweep as a as a tool that um, that will increase usage of the vaults? Can you explain a little bit of of how those two products are, are sort of connected? For sure. Um, so currently, the vaults are integrated with a few platforms like NFTFi and Arcade, and this is just another integration to increase. Uh, I mean, it's a captive use case for the borrowing rates. So you, you were also asking, like, what do we learn? Um, so one common trade that uh, a lot of our users were doing early on when we first launched was actually doing a positive carry trade. Um, so they were doing like, hey, let's borrow at a low interest rate because you have this like almost weighted average cost of capital, which is like an abstract way to pop out an interest rate depending on what inputs you put in. So 
you know, if you borrow low LTV, if you borrow at a um, low utilization, then you get a low interest rate. And then with that borrow, they would actually just farm you know, Terra Luna. Of course, Terra Luna is now gone and the cost of capital um, in the market is uh, no longer 20%. Um, so that trade kind of uh, dissipated. Um, so the the market kind of shifted towards like, why are we even borrowing? Um, and the right now the there were limited use cases there were there weren't that many mints to do um you know people say you got to pay tax but really i don't know anybody who really does that um but uh to borrow like there wasn't really much reason to do to besides like to hedge against the market so the peer-to-peer lending market really developed into like an options market where they were like hey i don't want to i want to hedge against the case like this this uh this nmt crashes in price so i'm going to borrow against it um at like a very high ltv which is a market that we don't really operate in because it's well quite risky um so we wanted a a reason for somebody to borrow at the same time they're using the the purpose of funds and that was going to be uh leverage trading and we uh we spent some some time looking into like um uh how where, where it might be most useful for a user and it's to borrow but also sell the asset during the borrow because then this creates a real like a spot margin and increases uh well more use cases for um the the purpose of funds in of itself which is the real product which is what are you using the funds for um and this gets us uh, uh, get connected a little closer to the borrower which you know for up to now has been a little separated because we were going through different platforms um in order to um, get to the end market. Um, so it brings us a little tighter. Um, and yeah, so it's directly connected with the vaults. And at the moment of, uh, you know, uh, somebody does a leverage sweep, um, where you buy like say, uh, three or four mebits, um, then that immediately creates, uh, a loan on the ministry vault. We actually, today we had our first, uh, Full, fully executed a leverage sale where we we ourselves bought a MIBIT on leverage and then somebody else bought that MIBIT that was listed for sale on OpenSea and that was fully executed and we got a small profit. Um, and that was with much less uh, equity provided on the trade. So instead of spending 3.0 uh, ETH, we really provided like 1.5, I believe, um, ETH and then the rest was uh, provided by debt. This also brings up another like concept, which is um, kind of like the cost of capital. I, I've been saying that a lot, but like to eat, better conceptualize it, just to make it easy to understand, like when you buy like a house in the real world, um, you don't really think this is how much it's worth. You think, well, what is the interest rate that I buy it at? Um, this is how, this is why FOMC matters so much. Um, when you buy something, you're thinking, what is the cost of capital? And that I'm buying the, the debt I'm using is only 2% interest rate, but also the cost of the equity, which is like, Hey, my equity opportunity costs, I could probably make 5% a year. So when you're buying something, you think, okay, what is, what is the, the cost of capital effectively? The, uh, the, the interest rates that are involved with, um, the acquisition, uh, capital. So this is an interesting way of thinking when it comes to, well, the users as well, because you can extend these loans forever on our platform. So every 30 days you can press this extend button. So people, our hope is that one day that people just buy NFTs on leverage forever and they don't really need to like a mortgage. Exactly. Like a mortgage. Yeah. Um, and this also helps uh well increase the layers of the onion because not everybody can buy a CryptoPunk, which is 66 ETH. Um, maybe they just want to have a low interest rate, buy it on leverage because this expands the layers of the onions. 
um, when you have this cap where it gets too expensive and the next marginal buyer is, well, not, not everybody is going to spend hundred K or 200 K or a million. If you believe that's going to be worth that much in the future, they'll need other sources of capital in order to achieve that acquisition. Okay. So so I really want to like hammer home that point that David made on the captive use of funds. So like just to give a, a real world example. So when you buy a house for, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, let's say, um, and you have, you have to put up a down payment, right? So you're putting up 20,000, you're borrowing 80,000. That, that market means that the, the existence of that mortgage market means that I don't, I don't need more than $20,000 to control that asset at any point in time. And if the value of my house appreciates to 150,000, I can sell it for 150,000 and pocket the $50,000 spread, right? That's pretty straightforward. Everyone understands that. So in the NFT lending market up until the creation of PowerSleep a couple of weeks ago, if I wanted to do the same thing, I would I needed to, um, and let's say that I was going to do a, a buy now pay later from one of these uh, debt providers, I would have put up the twenty thousand, I would have bought the the house for a hundred thousand, and then when it appreciates to one hundred and fifty thousand, I needed I would need to come up with uh, the eighty thousand to repay my loan, and then. I sell the house for 150,000. And that example just should illustrate why that doesn't make any sense and why it's so obvious that no one was using these platforms because I, I never had 80,000 in the first place. That's why I borrowed the money. So the creation of like autonom uh, 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 atomic uh, loan repayments at sale of asset totally opens up that leverage trading market that couldn't exist before. Because it's just like the order of operations made no sense. People didn't have that money to repay the fund in the first place. David, you said that one of your sort of prior experiences was art lending, right? And and I want to kind of dig in a bit because because you really talked about sort of you know as as we sort of go into a bear market, what are people borrowing the funds for? Right? And and one of the one of the things, especially in DeFi, is is you know speculation. That's why sort of options protocols, perpetuals protocols on DeFi, still getting quite a lot of usage even in the bear market. And I'm guessing that you know with this sort of power sweep kind of concept, you're sort of saying that okay, this sort of applies also in the in an NFT um, sort of market. Um, can, can you compare a bit as to uh, you know what, what what do you see in terms of the differences between sort of how people use funds in the art market that they're borrowing? At the end of the day, it's the source of capital is always one thing, which is speculation. Um, so, I mean, the use of funds. Uh, so in the art market, there's two real uh, art lending markets. One is the, um, you know, large bank lending market. And there's also private lending market, which and one's recourse and one's non-recourse, which means that if you default on the loan, then they can take other stuff. If it's recourse, if it's non-recourse, then the, the lender only has the rights to the artwork. Um, so the non-recourse is usually given by the big guys, you know, the credit suites of the world or, you know, um, whatever big bank that you're part of. And you have other things that are associated with the, with the, um, with the accounts. So you maybe have a mortgage with them and like, you know, you're lending against your stocks and stuff like that. This is how, you know, buy, borrow, die model works for the ultra, ultra wealthy. Um, so that's, that interest rate is pretty low. Um, and generally that's just 
them always borrowing everything that they own, which is the typical model for you know high, high net worth individuals. Um, the non-recourse loan industry, um, it's a little more interesting. And the use case for that um, is usually point of sale financing. So at the moment they buy something at auction is immediately collateralized is one strategy. Um, but also the, the funds there kind of moves towards uh, irrevocable bids, which is uh, when when you go to an auction and you want to provide a guarantee on a, on a sale. So you're selling the Salvatore Mundi, which is, you know, the most expensive painting ever sold. Um, and then you, you want to guarantee the price to the, the consigner or the seller. And that kind of guarantees a, uh, a price floor before it goes to sale. And what, the, what they get in exchange for that is that uh, they get a percentage of the upside. So it's almost like a exotic, uh, you know, put option for the seller where they're like, okay, I can sell this for at least 130 million, but at the same time, if it sells above 130 million, I have to give them 40%. That painting is actually a real example of an irrevocable bid because that was the most expensive painting ever sold. Uh, some Taiwanese billionaire guaranteed 130 million, sold for 415. So he got 40% of that, the guarantor, um, by putting up his own collateral, which was artwork. So that was like an example of lending against artwork for art's sake. Um, but generally it, it is also used for speculation. This is an example of somebody betting on the price. Um, and also generally, like I said, a lot of the loans are structured in terms of recourse loans along with private banks because the interest rates are so much lower. They can be like as low as like one to 2% because they got other things in there. It's more like a favor to get more business. Um, and the non-recourse industry is a little, a little iffier nowadays. Um, but it's still ways to gain additional liquidity for whatever purposes that they want to use. Usually to buy more artwork uh, is usually how it works because they do have a lot of liquidity for that. Um, but the, the collateralization rates in the art world is quite low because the, at a, at a per asset lending rate, you only get like 10 to 50% on like uh, certain assets, especially if it's in trade often. If it's like a Warhol and it's like, well, the provenance is good. You can get up to like 50% uh, LTV, which is not bad. Um, so another one is they want to collateralize it up until they want to donate or like have an ex liquidity strategy for it. Um, as Connor was saying, because well, they don't want to pay down the full debt. Um, and that is usually for uh, you know, donation event or a tax event like that, or it, it might appraise and then you sell the reappraised value. Um, so you get a larger, well, discount in your tax. Um, and that's another extra liquidity strategy. As you're kind of laying it out, I'm seeing kind of, you know, with the vault and then the Powell Suite product, these are sort of very infant prototypes of of what you hope basically the market will mature into. Where uh, you know, essentially, uh, it, it sort of turns into that sort of non recourse art market. Does that sound like that's kind of my interpretation of of, of how you see the vision of this sort of turning out or? It's actually pretty far from the vision. We okay. think this uh, the, the the PFP industry is a quite interesting example, but we don't okay. know what PFPs are going to be in the future. I actually don't like the art lending market personally because that's why I left it pretty fast. Is because it's kind of a slime industry, a lot of suing and like oh you damaged my artwork, yada yada, to get um, ownership of the underlying asset. Um, and that's why I went to banking because you know that's less slimy. <laughs> Anyways. Um, the uh, the real industry that we're really fascinated by are the cash flow generating like hard assets. I like to joke like it could be a brick of dirt as long as it generates cash flow and pays on the debt. It's a solid asset. Um, and 
that's kind of what we're most excited for. Like these are incredibly productive assets. NFTs can be gaming assets. They could be like uh, uh, rentable assets, which was an exciting narrative. And I still, I think it still could be. Um, that's where we think you can get really interesting structures um, because once NFTs have kind of a labor markets less around them, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, uh, gaming or servicing or even related just to artwork, um, if it generates some sort of cash and that that shows ability to pay down the debt, that's when you can get LTVs of higher than 50%, 70, 80, or 90, or kind of like mortgage industry, because you know the borrow with whatever FICO score that he has or um, the background individual, um, if it shows a high ability to pay down debt, then they get really good rates because, well, um, it's just, it becomes a very stable and long-term structure. Um, and this is what Connor and I like to say too, is like you really see a fixed income industry kind of develop after you have a uh, um, cash flow starting to develop because you, you start looking to the value into the future. Like if it's generating five years into the future and cash flows are generated, then obviously you can do very stable, like fixed income, like uh, lending structures because you have visibility. Um, and that's what we're excited about. It's like, when are, when are people going to start assimilating? What is the social graph going to be like on top of the NFTs and how does that relate to the cash flows that are generated for the underlying asset? Um, and that's when you get not just art, art based lending. It's when you get mortgage like structures uh, as well as like, uh, corporate based lending structures or, uh, what do you think needs to happen to kind of get there? Um, and specifically, do you think that, we do you think that the 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 sort of the, the social graph of the current sort of collectors slash holders of the NFTs is going to be that kind of social graph that you need, or do you think that a completely different sort of demographic of people needs to come in in order for this to kind of realize? Yeah, I think I think right now you're seeing the early development of it. We're working with some partners on the idea, but this is this is a market shift uh, uh, situation, like an Overton Windows strategy, than it is a growth hacking thing. Um, because we plan to stay in the industry for a while, and we do think wallet interactions will improve. Gaming uh, industries will also improve. Um, we think uh, you're already seeing um, social tokens already arise. Um, there's rumors of you know Doodles and Moonbird like tokens going to happen in, in 2023. Um, you already see ApeCoin kind of appearing with like ape, ape coin staking and that's going to directly relate to other side land and on that metaverse that's being developed um and and I, th- I think the real like real decent example is probably ens it's like the largest nft market with a token um uh which i think a lot of people ignore it doesn't really have cash flows related to each other once a lot more about governance and the other ones about the utility uh, but as you see like uh, kind of like this uh information start boiling up um then you might have quite interesting structures. Um, we actually have a, a, a conference, uh, I guess, whenever this podcast comes out, but uh, on, on the November 4th, which kind of goes into all these topics of uh, you know, social graph, really looking at the user, like NFT user is so different from the DeFi user, um, NFT gaming user is different from the NFT art user. Um, and then we look into the systems of where uh, kind of NFT finance is going because all of these things are all, all correlated to the credit worthiness of the underlying asset. Um, so just wanted to squeeze that in. So talk a bit more about the the, the metaverse economic forum um, that, yeah, that you guys yeah. are going to be hosting part of. So so what what's going on at this conference? And, and, and I guess talk a bit more about like, because you're talking about an Overton Windows shift, right? Which is a very, a very ambitious um, uh, goal. 
Totally. Um, so one thing, uh, you know, I've, I've said like NFT, XDFi or NFT finance, which is kind of what people view this industry as, which is one of my least favorite um, phrases like, hey, this is NFT DeFi. And that's our investment thesis, which is a convenient path of like, hey, this must be a narrative because there's two things together. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the inspiration behind it is because it doesn't feel like a real platform. If you actually look at the, all the NFT DeFi projects out there, I'm sure you've seen many like, um, and I include like uh, companies like Tessera or like all the way to, well, uh, derivatives and stuff like that. Um, it just doesn't feel like we're all working together in a single idea, much like DeFi was. I mean, very unlike DeFi was because DeFi was incredibly cohesive in that narrative um, from, uh, in the early days, um, like really Prague 2018, um, that's when I really saw the community come together at the first DeFi conference. Um, and that's why I never really liked the phrase, um, because what we're building is kind of bigger, as I'm saying, like it's the foundations of everything and all things metaverse and also all interactions when it comes to digital asset ownership, because NFTs can represent anything non-fungible, which is anything um, from swords to whatever that we create in the virtual worlds. So a phrase that I, I prefer thinking of, is like, this is really the capital markets for the metaverse. It's all things related to capital, money, assets, and ownership. And our, our motto is credit, ownership, and trust. Um, and how we can rapidly universalize these concepts to create well, capital market tools to let any community create their own economy. Because to, to my theory is that the metaverse has infinite land, infinite virtualization. We've kind of gotten this far in terms of the tech behind it, but the culture and the technology and the economy that kind of creates real communities online, as we've seen for NFTs um, and, you know, develops a social graph and stuff like that, that requires tools um, that bankers and uh, nations have used for, for decades and uh, millennia. Um, and those kind of tools we want to help encourage and give um, users the free right to in order to create the communities online and the virtual worlds that we envision. Um, so that's yeah, kind of why and ethics are and I think like, you know, we, we kind of have this view that I don't think is a hot take at all that um, the world is going to be continuing, continuously, increasingly online. And that means that there's going to be increasingly larger and larger digital economies that come out of that. And your options, if you kind of, if you can kind of agree that that's the path forward for the world, then your options become, okay, in this digital interaction, in this metaverse, you know, is this a, you know, Google and Facebook or meta controlled experience? Or is this something that's more organic and open source? And I think, you know, we want to build the, the tools that would allow for true digital ownership to exist, uh, you know, non beholden to some big company having, you know, an, uh, a database that can, uh, has all your information in it. And the, the theme of the conference is really revolving around that. And so we have people, you know, we have uh, ENS coming to speak about social graphs. Um, we have 6529 uh, Capital coming to speak about, you know, open metaverse and investing in, in open source, uh, you know, decentralized projects. And so the, the, the effort for us with MEF is to take all of these individual efforts uh, that are really kind of on the cutting edge of what's possible in, in kind of non permissionless blockchain technology and whether that's derivatives or social graphs or lending or um or options or you know DAOs as financial patrons it's basically trying to take all those people that may know one or two of the other you know participants in the conference and get 
get kind of those ideas flowing and get that recognition that this is a bigger effort than just a single project, you know, trying to push their token out or their NFT drop out. But it's rather kind of like, you know, an effort to combine people's, you know, broader ethos driven missions uh, to, you know, have an open metaverse and have decentralized, you know, base layer for future digital interaction. So I think that's the effort and it really hasn't happened. And that that's what's been so frustrating for us, even looking at uh, NFT London's lineup, they didn't really have anything on financial financialization or infrastructure efforts, even though we think that's such an important kind of facet of, of this industry. So that's really the effort behind, behind the conference. So we'll have a bunch of great speakers and then we'll also be recording everything. And the idea is to kind of keep the the actual in-person experience quite intimate and uh, personal and kind of draw out those like really interesting takeaways that um, people might have uh, within their specific kind of areas of expertise, um, but then be able to, to disseminate all that information digitally and be able to kind of share that broader narrative with, you know, all of the social media platforms. When you're talking about sort of building the, the greater vision for, I guess, capital markets for the metaverse, it sounds like you guys uh, have ideas for all sorts of products that that uh, you know that that dwarfs what you've currently put out. Yeah, this is more for the Metaverse Economic Forum. Um, it's kind of a play on obviously a WEF, but I like to say we will make insects. So um, this is more so like what we can do to bring the community together and kind of uh, like kickstart narrative that something is happening. Uh, the key metric that I'm I'm going to show is like what is a percentage of lending volume, on-chain volume versus what is the volume of, uh, of actual OpenSea volume and uh, trading volume, which up to now has been the predominant strategy for well, making money in the space. Um, it's, it went from when we started like 0.001% of the, of the monthly trading volume to now 8% or I think it's closer to 10 now. Uh, it changes month by month, but like it's, it's kind of kicked up because, well, of course, volume has decreased uh, uh, quite, quite a bit. Um, just the nature of any nascent industry, but at the same time, like the, the activation energy for different NFTs have, have increased significantly uh, in different ways, which is, again, reminiscent of, of 2017 ICOs and then DeFi activating those jail assets um, and kind of, uh, kind of un, uh, unbounding the silos that exist between NFTs. Um, right now, if you're a, a startup in this space and NFT um, in utilization, you have to go to an NFT protocol and actively try to like bridge the gap. Whereas um, DeFi, like you start a protocol, you see 10 people in your discord trying to integrate with you like within the second week um, because they, they, they're all about aggregation and collaboration and composability as like a key phrase, which doesn't exist really at all as a concept in NFT world. They say composability, but then they haven't really talked to any games to integrate like maybe once in a while, but it's really, really active media engagement. Um, but yeah, this is just more so like the MEF, um, um, beliefs. Of course, we share the same beliefs as, as, as a company, like in terms of expanding the GDP of the metaverse, which is our slogan. Um, but, uh, the vision goes is, is kind of a starting point where we do believe that a lot of tools and you know, experiments can be done. And this is what we're encouraging. And this is what we're also focusing on over the next few months to do quite a bit of 
fun tinkerings and, and experiments to really create new primitives designed around NFTs and not just, you know, replicate the DeFi primitives, which were made for money markets. These are hard assets. Um, some, some top tier collections now trade three or four times a day at most. You can't use that for uh, um, liquidation purposes, as an example. Um, there has to be new mechanisms involved uh, that really adjust to the to the realities of NFTs. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an open discussion. It's an initial discussion. It's the first one um, yet. And there's never been an NFT DeFi conference. That's my meetups, but never a conference. Um, and we're hoping that we see a lot of cool ideas can spawn out of, as a result of it, or at least a dialogue to become concrete as opposed to something. Let, let me play a bit of devil's advocate here. Um, I think you talked about in terms of, especially DeFi in the early days and, and, and still somewhat today, that I think there's a lot of composability. There's a lot of um, sort of integrations between different projects. Um, do you feel that it might be because um, everyone in DeFi was, and, and to some extent still is, kind of united by a singular kind of political vision in terms of the sort of the, the permissionless sort of finance uh, in opposition, I guess, to, to traditional finance. Whereas, you know, where NFTs are today, because it's driven mostly by sort of the NFT projects, whether it be art or, or sort of profile pictures, um, there are quite different, um, I guess, visions, both political and, and, you know, and otherwise, uh, and, and not everyone believes in the same thing as you get in DeFi, where a lot of people believe in kind of the, that same sort of permissionless, um, sort of trustless vision. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Uh, it's, uh, I think political identity in DeFi is a lot stronger, um, but that I think that's also a result of um, after the first few meetings in DeFi. When when I first heard DeFi, I was talking to the people there, like nobody even worked in finance once and didn't know what the time value of money was. Um, but I think that the ideologies can grow and co collaborate because for NFT specifically, right now it might not seem like there's a single identity, um, but they all believe in a single universe online where people can share or multiverses where they can collaborate and move between worlds. That's a vision that we all kind of share while, while it's not as strong as of a political like thought process or ideology. Um, I think composability is something that they all can benefit from and have stronger communities online for and having the same tools to develop the same experiences, maybe in different, uh, different communities, but those kind of things, I think a lot of them could share. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like just to like kind of take a different, point of view on that question, you know, like political positioning aside, um, or kind of, you know, ethic, uh, ethical stances aside, like liquidity and price discovery are fundamentally good things for anything. And so, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, money markets or, or NFTs or capital markets or whatever, uh, having debt markets, equals liquidity and price discovery. Every time a loan gets made on, on Niftify or on Arcade or through PowerSweep, uh, the lender is buying that asset at a price. And they're, we're going to find out 30 days later whether or not you know that was a good purchase or not. But either way, it creates a new layer of liquidity and discovery. And so when you see kind of these, these volumes drying up of these collections that launched maybe a year ago, and now you're seeing only a handful of daily trades, um, then what happens? Then you go and you look at the lending market and you say, okay, 
Yeah, maybe I, I, I'm not so sure of where the, the current value is of this asset. But I do know that I can borrow against it up to, you know, 50% of whatever this hypothetical value is. And because I can do that, I have confidence in the creditworthiness of the asset. I have confidence in the underlying value remaining there. Um, so I think regardless of, you know, individual NFT collections having differing viewpoints or being, you know, tribal towards each other, um, they everyone will benefit from having, you know, better kind of underlying debt markets um, supporting them. And that's really what we're trying to build is just, you know, better liquidity for, for all these projects. Let's move, I guess, to, to something a, a bit more lighthearted um, b- before we kind of wrap up. Um, each one of you put you on the spot right now. Uh, which one, which NFT is your favorite NFT? Um, I, I would say CryptoPunks um, because for one, uh, I think it has the most history um, in terms of not just, uh, obviously it exists the longest, but I think in terms of its correlations to certain assets, it's, uh, it's kind of showed the most um, broadly accepted identity. Um, so not the punk, obviously. Um, and I, I think it's like essentially a lever long on ETH and a belief in the community as an investment, um, not necessarily just it being a, you know, a nice asset. Um, I also, I'm going to give two answers. I also like a project called the idols. I have a lot of those, like an excessive amount, um, just like the team. Um, and I, that is also kind of a lever long ETH uh, thesis as well, because yeah, it's, it's, by really the, it's by the yeah. team, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think they have, I don't know if it's, I have, I have no idea if they're connected. I just know they they talked a lot about stuff. So probably related. Um, so I really like those assets. Um, and uh, if a one out of one that I have is actually an auction that I want on like a uh, Zora contract, it was like the code base behind it. Um, I don't think it's worth anything today, but it was one of my like biggest ETH purchases. And I was like, it looked rare when I bought it. So I do like that, <laughs> even as a code base, not actually artwork. Um, but uh, uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's about cultural value, not monetary value. Sure. I mean, so- if we're like, now that we're into the bear market, like the the only NFTs that you can really feel good about are something that was the first of something or has some specific reason why it's going to last forever. So, I think uh, I, I would say my my favorite collection is probably the Squiggles. They just did uh, their their mint of next ten to get to three hundred for Squiggle Dow yesterday, which is cool. But uh, same right, like super strong community, first of its kind in in our blocks assets. Um, I think actually the creation of a DAO around an NFT collection is sort of critical for the longstanding success. And you see that with literally every project that people would deem blue chip is, is sort of this push to then have a DAO to support the collection as a whole. Um, and I think those guys have really been leaders in a lot of those efforts, um, creating a DAO to support the collection. They were, they've been a huge participant in the lending markets, um, and just have like a really good appreciation of, of what fundamentally the stands for and the provenance and uh, also love the QQL experience. I think that's like a fascinating social experiment. And like, um, if we were to fast forward, you know, h- however many years with not all of those mint passes, having um, a single seed connected to them and like the, just the scale of the possible uh, generative art pieces that could have been created and like the implication that, you know, five years from now or something, you could be talking about 
one in a hundred trillion chance of, you know, one of these seeds becoming a, a QQL, I think is like so cool and fascinating. Um, and they're actually creating a, a seed marketplace so that uh, people who are going and, and going through the effort, these different seeds, like can actually then sell those to uh, mentors. So I think that's like a, a really, really fascinating experiment in, in uh, is that really uh, hasn't happened before. One uh, to go to the foil of one out of ones um, and rare assets. Uh, one, one, one category I really, really like is the digits around ENS. Um, so I'm giving you multiple <laughs> answers, but not only the digits, you know, three, four, five digits, but then negative digits, which uh, came out a result of that. So people are now buying negative uh, three digits. Um, I just think that's like the most organic um, and interesting market um and it might relate to our v2 down the road so intent um where you know so we remember we all remember yats uh where uh, we all bought yats and uh i think we all did um i did at least <laughs> um where it was it was it was very like marketing heavy and it felt a little forced it was an interesting product for sure um i mean steve cohen was buying same, same with paris but um uh the ens community and how they started buying and ascertaining value to things that are really uh similar to my point of like infinite virtualization infinite possibility but only like this location has an economy around it kind of like you know vegas in the, in, the, in the middle of a desert it's like we chose this spot and the city will be, be spawned out of this creation of gambling sure but it was just that certain area um that's how i felt about ens it's like we decided hey these are valuable <laughs> these are credit worthy they're getting a bunch of loans um uh and i i think that kind of gets me excited because it shows like an infinite plane like value will be created somewhere um just have to be sure that they have the tools to do so i mean i mean it really is ns the ns numbers thing is really like the domain sort of the domain the second domain grab right it, which is kind of fascinating yeah. that when, when domains first came out there wasn't that many squatters like people squatted you know the, the common words but only after like the first dot-com boom did the like the the domain squatting really, really like getting to gear, right? And it seems like this is the case for ENS, right? When it first came out, you didn't have that many squatters, but then like <laughs> after after sort of the, at the end of the bull run, like the, the squatting really, really sort of took off. Um, it's just kind of fascinating how, how history repeats itself. Um, it's, it's been a fascinating chat, uh, Connor and uh, David. Um, tell our listeners how they can get up with you, like, you know, show your Twitters and, and, the, and the websites and, and, and maybe the economic forum as well. Um, yeah, um, metastreet.xyz is the website. Um, if you just go to the metastreet, metastreet.xyz Twitter, you'll see all of the accounts and everything. Um, I'm underscore Connor Moore, uh, which people probably spell correctly. But if you spend enough time digging around the metastreet uh, Twitter, um, yeah, David, I don't know. Uh, yeah, mine's KTK Zergs. Been using that since I was in first grade. Um, and uh, the flock is also something, actually, it's called a, a MEF Digital right now. Um, but uh, we have the Metaverse Economic Forum in London, November 4th. Um, I think this might be posted afterwards. Uh, but that is a, um, a conference that we're hosting. Um, but usually we have uh, something called the flock, which is two underscores, the flock, and uh, two underscores on Twitter, um, where we post uh, NFT finance research, especially around the lending markets. So um, we, uh, we, uh, we're we really trying to push this narrative that uh, there's more uses, use cases for NFTs beyond the 
purposes of the community, um, which we're beginning to see across uh, all, all vectors. Um, so uh, we, we do post quite a bit of research in the space, um, as well as obviously trying to encourage people to uh, borrow more and lower the cost of capital and lower the cost of ownership. So uh, feel free to join Discord as well on our website. Um, we can chat there. And I guess one one thing I'll leave you with, if this does end up coming out before MEF, um, is obviously the, the focus of the conference is like we were saying before on um, trust and expanding the narrative around NFT finance. Um, but we're also doing a, a new product reveal um, on, on Friday. And that product will be what I was saying earlier in the conversation around the challenges around having long tail coverage. So permissionless coverage, Oracle-less uh, lending markets and capital efficiency as, as kind of these three fundamental pillars uh, that no one has, has fully solved yet. Um, that that new product that we'll be revealing at MEF will be uh, you know around solving those problems. So um, if this comes out beforehand, then people will get a little bit of uh, extra heads up on that. Connor, David, it's been awesome having you on the show. Uh, this is Saber Tooth here signing off uh, on another episode of Floor Is Rising. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor Is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast please subscribe and follow and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising. <laughs>